0: Okay, all right. The floor is yours. Thanks. Um. Hi,
1: my name is Christian Williams, and uh, I just finished my PhD uh, in category theory at UC Riverside, and um, I want to present uh, an ideal that I'm calling logic in color. Um, basically, it is um. Basically, during my thesis, um, I had always suspected that category theory was a unifying language. And during the thesis, I figured out how to um, make that a reality in a certain sense. Um, And basically, my thesis is proposing that category theory is simply the language of thinking in a in a precise sense and um, it introduces a visual language um, which i believe can help cultivate um the understanding of category theory in the public consciousness um, so unfortunately i don't have slides today and i'll, I'll explain why um, i'm in kind of a transition period right now um, but I do have this wiki that I'm developing for this, for this idea. So you can go to colorlogic.io, uh, I can put it in the chat. Um, there we go, colorlogic.io. Um, and so... Um, Essentially, my thesis was on meta logic, which is a um, basically all right. Starting starting from the beginning, um, the underlying philosophy of my thesis is that category theory is logic, uh, in in a general naive sense, not in a particular sense about logic, just a completely general language of thinking. Um, And um, I propose that logic is two-dimensional. Specifically, it's formalized in a structure. uh, the, The concept of a logic is formalized in a structure called a bifibrant double category. And this structure can be interpreted as a system of thoughts of a world, and that's why I call it a logic. Um, So category theory is known as a unifying language of math, and recently applied category theory has begun to explore and develop it as a unifying language for all kinds of science. But what actually is category theory? Why is it so effective in unifying things? That is what my thesis is proposing, is that it is, it's because it's simply the language of thinking. So what exactly do I mean by that? Uh, what constitutes a language of thinking? Um, a world, um, essentially a logic can be understood as a system of thoughts of a world. So a world is a category of types of things and processes between types. So this, uh, in this square here, the colors and the vertical pointers are types and processes. So the classic example would be sets and functions. And then a thought of the world is a relation of types, and a, um, a process of thinking is a, a transformation of relations, or you could also call this an inference here so um in classical logic um this would be a a binary relation a matrix of truth values indexed by x times y and the inference here um would be this um this inference here for all xy um if q relates x to y then, R relates f of x to g of y. So you can picture to connect this to computer science, you can um, another word for these squares are uh, just programs. Um, you've probably heard of like the analogy between proofs and programs. Um, so here this inference, it they're all the same thing. Um, So building programs would be composing these squares. Um, So essentially what I'm calling logic and color is a way of learning category theory in its full depth and power without having to bring in tons of stuff from mathematics. Um, Just using the idea of category theory as generalized logic. And you can start from ordinary binary classical logic that people are familiar with. And the way that you expand to general category theory is by introducing the idea that these relations can contain more than just truth values. You could have a set of connections between things, or a space of connections between things, or a distance, or whatever you want. And that's where you enter type theory and category theory. so this is an education program that I want to begin developing now that I've um finished the thesis. So that's why right now unfortunately I I don't have the nice slides and presentation ready for the logic part because the thesis was about the meta logic part which was making the 3D World of all two-dimensional logics, so that that stuff is really developed right now. That you could find in this meta logic part, and I'd be happy to talk about this, but um, but I figure um, if unless you're really familiar with category theory, um, that that discussing this idea of category theory as logic would be the place to start. Um, yeah,
2: that's perfect. Wait, so Christian, are you sort of saying now's a good time to open to Q and A or you'd like to present or what's the sort of direction you'd like to go?
1: Yeah. Um, there's a lot of, um, directions that it could go. I mean, basically I like at some point I can outline that it's, it's just a three part, um, story that gives you like the full language and generality of category theory. Um, but for right now, I'm, I'm happy to just
0: open it up to, to any kind of general discussion. Um, awesome. Max, it seemed like you had something. Yeah. Um, okay. It, it kind of looked like refinement, what you were just showing with this, um, and also a little bit like a one-sided Galois connection, like you change your if and only if to like an implication. Is my intuition sort of right here that you're doing something sort of refinement-ish um, with like structuring things by these relations and how they, they move inequalities?
1: Uh, Yes, I think so. Can you remind me about refinement?
0: Yeah, like we do this in like automata theory, where you'll have some really, really big complicated automaton, and then you have some simpler automaton. And you basically show that if you take a marker and draw circles around some of the states, uh, and then like collapse them in to be one state, you get the simpler thing. Um, And then there's like more complicated notions of refinement, but um, you can have this idea of like a simplification of uh, a implementation being the abstraction. And so the implementation like implements the abstraction. And it kind of seems like you're doing something like that here where you have your relation Q is like preserved by the structure implied by F and G uh, or something along those lines, but I'm not really sure if I'm following completely. Um, and maybe the Galois connection is a better a better way to look at it, but with a Galois connection, this would be an if and only if, right? Not an implication.
1: Um, yeah, the this second one I'm not sure about, but um, I think probably the simplest way to understand this is that I is a program, um, where Q is a precondition and R is a postcondition. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So you have like, um, you have some input types. So here we're showing binary, but you could have uh, as as high of an arity as you want. Uh, it just gets a little bit three dimensional as you have like sheets of these colors. And uh, so you have these input types and programs on that data. And then you have dependent types where this real binary relations in classical logic are the simplest example of, of dependent types. So a predicate on a set is the simplest kind of dependent type, which uh, you know in programming terminology would be a precondition on your data that you need to check. And then if so, it transforms and uh, ensures uh,
0: this post-condition. Yeah. And your program is like your interpretation of the facts, which are kind of your observable things in your world. Is that more or less correct? Um, Sorry, Uh, can you say that again? So the program I is essentially how you interpret the set of things that you know about the world. Is that is that kind of the way we should think about this intuitively?
1: Uh, well, I is... I is just an implication so it's just like witnessing the fact that if Q relates X to Y then R relates f of X to G of Y okay um so it's just like a oh whoops it's just a proof uh of some kind of like you know um, condition on your program that it's preserving some some property that you that you care about okay yeah
2: so can i ask a a less technical but sort of open-ended question here christian yeah Um, yeah so sorry i'm just thinking out loud so i'm gonna try to explain this well so it's to me it feels like types and processes um i could be wrong but you could probably replace these words with a lot of things like dots and arrows, or lots of different fancy category theoretic words. Mm -hmm. And when many people produce a body of work to be read, it's usually a good idea in academic publishing to put your own terms and have like a unified idea about what it should be. But I do get the sense that these are very intentionally chosen. And I'm just sort of curious about some of the motivation in this way, because I think that when you're trying to design something like you are now, like an approachable um, way to understand thinking, when you climb the the mountain of mathematics that gets incredibly dense quickly, it's like, it's, it's a really tough needle to kind of thread about why you made a lot of these decisions. Um, I'm just curious if you can speak to sort of some of the background of how you came to this type of work, how you went from the intuition of, I think that it would be helpful to frame category theory in a different way and use it as an academic thing. It's like, I know this is a super big question, but if you wanna go for a simple concrete one, why choose the words types and processes rather than dots and arrows? And hmm. the one I'm really trying to get at is how'd you sort of go on your path towards this? Like not the not yeah. completed work, but sort of how'd you get here?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So as far as the terminology, I wanted to choose the stuff that would be simplest and most intuitive to, like, anybody, not just, you know, not just somebody in math or computer science, but like, I wanted to choose words that people were already familiar with. So when somebody says, like, what type of thing is that? I mean, that's, language that we use, you know, uh, even from an early age. And, and I think the same for process, it's maybe a little less common, but I think people know what you mean by a process, you know, that changes one type of thing into another. So my, my priority has been to try to make things as simple as possible. But of course, like, um, a lot of this will take time to refine and it will require input from lots of different people i've just been doing this alone so far but that that's my thinking so far is same with relation and transformation um people know what those words mean without any math or computer science background um and yeah um so as far as like how um the the path to get here basically um i did a bunch of projects in grad school um related to computer science basically using categorical logic um to make type systems for programming languages um but Uh, A couple of years ago, I was like supposed to choose what I wanted to do for my thesis and I didn't know um, what I really wanted to do. And my friend showed me um, this guy, David Jazz Myers. He's the one who defined this visual language. And it's an extension of, um, so I'm just curious, uh who has some familiarity with string diagrams for monoidal
0: categories?
1: Okay. I so you
0: heard is probably raising his hand too, but you just can't see it. Yeah.
1: Okay. Cool. So yeah, there's been growing uh you know awareness and excitement about string diagrams from monoidal categories.
0: Well, um, just interject for a moment for the, for example, like uh, Chris did his master's in math of, before category theory was popular and might not know this. An important thing about these diagrams is that they're semantical. And so like, you can take these diagrams and do math using the diagrams. You can do like diagrammatic calculations, which, you know, correct me if you disagree with what I'm saying, but I think that's what makes them compelling is they're not just a visual, display of something, but they're like, maybe the ideal way to reason about certain types of objects. Is that more or less correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: yeah, I think a big part of the, of what makes them so useful is that, um, for many ideas, like when you're thinking generally, a lot of the time you don't need symbols. Like you can express ideas in a general form and then instantiate that um, by like um, substituting symbols when you wanna actually do computation with some idea. So it, it lets you just get like a pure kind of direct intuition uh of some idea like you know swap something as simple as like swapping uh data uh between two streams for example you literally just draw it as uh, you know swapping wires um yeah so there there's been uh quite a growing body of work on string diagrams for monoidal categories and they are very useful um but there is a very simple and very powerful generalization of those where you just allow colors to be in the background. Um, and that introduces um, basically that now you can think of the strings as being relations between different types and um, composition as being a uh, composition of those relations. So it's a direct generalization of the black and white string diagrams. You're just adding colors in the background.
2: And the, sorry to interrupt, the colors represent types? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah.
0: Christian, could you talk a little bit about what types are to you? Because I am a fifth-year PhD student in computer science. I've taken Amal Ahmed's class and I'm still not convinced anybody's given a decent definition of a type Um, uh, other Mm -hmm. than, I guess, if you just say, well, it's anything you can make out of Lambda calculus, but maybe that's your answer. I don't know, but how do you, conceptualized types
1: yeah um it's a good question it's such a primitive you know notion that uh it's hard to express it in terms of other things but um uh to me like it's the basic container like through which we think about anything everything is some type of thing and by typifying it you're shaping how it relates to other things um like i yeah like for me the formal definition would be that it's it's any object of a category um but um
0: Yeah, I guess it's interesting to me because the category people tend to do a lot of constructive mathematics uh, from what I've seen and criticize a lot of the set theory stuff for being kind of non constructive and yet sets are constructed right? Like the definition of set is constructive in nature. And um, the definition of type seems to be relational in nature. It's about what you can do with it as opposed to what it is. Uh, And so it's kind of this like interesting irony. Again, I'm not a category theorist, but from what I can see from the outside, um, uh, that I've always found a little intriguing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure what uh, insights... I have to offer. Like I, I usually. Um, I I think people have different views of foundations and what you what 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 we should mean by a foundation. And my attitude is mostly. Um, a little bit flexible and practical. Um, like with a priority on um determining what is the general language that we're always using in in any kind of uh science um and then yes maybe that language when you define it depends on previous things and some people wouldn't be satisfied with that and they would start looking for the bottom again but um if yeah, uh I, I just kind of take like a, a f- kind of flexible um approach. Um but sorry, I, I wanted to just um answer like how did I how did I get to this? Basically, my friend uh, David showed me this language. I'm getting some lag here. Um and he was showing me how certain he was just showing me how various ideas in category theory um, become literally like child's play, literally like you know, just sliding one bead through another one or bending some string or something. And there were a lot of ideas that people regard as very advanced, it, even within category theory. People regard these things called like con extensions uh, as very advanced. And they became just like amazingly simple uh, in this language. And I was just blown away. And it seemed like pretty much everybody in the community is really focused on trying to apply category theory to something to prove to the world that it's useful. It seems like everybody's in this mode, like if I can make the next better thing, I can show people like, okay, now we really got to use this thing. Uh, And because of the pressures of academia, nobody had time uh, to focus on education or exposition. And to me, it really seemed like one of the biggest, possibly the biggest bottleneck of this whole um, subject is that people don't understand it. It's, it's You know, some people, abstract thinking comes naturally to them, and they can juggle all all kinds of things in their head, but most people can't. And um, it seems to me like the category theory has kind of held itself back a little bit by being um, very abstract without it providing much intuition. Um, And so that's... Yeah, basically two years ago I realized that I wanted to do something with this language. Um, but you can't really do something just based on education for a thesis. So I needed to um to do some actual uh theory. And so so what I actually did for the thesis was um essentially, why is this being so slow? Um, Basically, um, I I realized that the two-dimensional language generalizes to three dimensions, um, where the third visual dimension is from inner to outer. And this can be understood as meta-logic because um, it's a transformation from... An inner from from some inference or program in this inner logic to an inference or program in the outer logic. Um so um anyway, that's that's what I've been focusing on the past couple of years. It took a long time to figure all uh, figure out all of that stuff. So now I'm trying to transition back to
2: uh to the education aspect. That is amazing. I'd love to do one follow up that's on that's that. really cool. To... The... Oh sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to uh, just one comment to make sure I'm understanding. Um also I'd love to take this course whenever that's possible. And um Yeah, awesome. And then I'll stop hogging the conversation. But okay, so just to summarize and make sure I'm understanding. It sounds like right now people try to justify category theory by saying you've climbed the mountain of your discipline. Here's a cool example where we're gonna show you why it's important to climb the mountain of category theory. And you saw this paper that extends the diagrams that were good from monoidal structures. Mm -hmm. And you had some intuition of, oh, we can use this everywhere else. And this will simplify things so the category theory mountain is easier to climb. So instead of saying, you should totally do it, you're saying, it's not that bad. Um, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just wanted to make sure I understood. And then my follow-up question is, would you say this structure is a strict simplification that makes it, as long as like you're not blind or something, that makes it easier to work with? Or are there concepts in category theory that are more difficult to understand with these diagrams? And then I'm happy to just hear about matrix logic and active logic or let other people ask
1: questions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the thing about uh, vision, like, that is something that I'm really interested in. like this this should be available to everybody. So um, I hope and think that there will be a version of this um, that is not visual. Um, but I I haven't um, been able to look into it yet. But uh, also for color blindness, um, that is another issue here. So um, that one is a little, I have some better idea of, you know, using different textures for that kind of thing. So there are, yeah, there are definitely some accessibility issues here. Um, but uh yeah, in terms of things that might be harder. So the main thing that I want to emphasize is that um, right now people think of string diagrams as an alternative to syntax. But actually, because they're dual to each other, this this object here is zero dimensional, whereas the color is two dimensional. Um, what we would normally draw is an arrow going down here. We're doing the dual and cutting across like this, and same for the relations. And then the the inference that normally would be two-dimensional, we've collapsed to a zero-dimensional bead that's connecting all of the strings. Um, so because that they're dual, it's not actually an either-or choice, they're actually complementary. Um and so anything, so here, like. This is exactly how people would write. If you just look at the um, the symbols, that's how people would write uh, an inference rule in just ordinary classical logic. They they would, um, you know, if you just look up like sequent calculus or something, um, you know, they're making some judgment and then a bar and then some other judgment. Um, and that's exactly the same as these squares. Um, so that's why I don't think it's necessarily, I don't know how something could be harder because all, oh, I was just looking for an example. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, these, these sequence here. Um, can equivalently be expressed like this. Um, but yeah, so so all that um, the string diagrams offer is the ability to strip away the symbols temporarily whenever you want, when you just want to look at the general form of something. And then you can... Instantiate that by actually writing in the string diagrams. So, so what I've, um, so I, what I'm actually proposing is a blend of string diagrams and syntax, um, in which you can actually treat the string diagram as a general structure and then substituting syntax in the structure determines instances of it. So the the blank diagram would be a whole logic. Then you plug in two objects, two types, and that determines the category of relations between them. Uh, And similarly for determining like the set of, of inferences. So, yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but I'm, I'm just like, not sure right now what, what, what could be harder about it. It's just offering.
2: uh, Yeah, Yeah, that that makes sense. It's like a strict dual. So you could, the only thing I could imagine being harder is like, maybe you have a whole bunch of similar categories. Or you have some weird relationship in these diagrams that matches X and B, but not A and Y. And like the, the pictures could get more complicated, but that's just my suspicion. And I, I don't know, but yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: the pictures can definitely get complicated, but. Um, like part, part of what actually might be complicated is that we care about both the two-dimensional structure and more monoidal structures on top of that. So here, if we're talking about like sets and functions and relations and implications, we also care about product and coproduct of sets, right? Um, and that, those form extra dimensions. If you want to like represent everything visually, the product of sets would introduce like, you have to have sheets here in layers. Um, So, stuff like that does start to get a bit more complicated, but I'm hoping that with the right visualization software that you can, like, take slices to view things in lower dimensions. I'm hoping that um, that's still
0: workable. You envision Um, a regime of purely visual or mostly visual interactive theorem proving. Is that essentially where this would end up? Yeah, I, I think it's possible. I think it's possible. Um, I definitely like, as somebody who does a lot of interactive theorem proving, I get the, the emotional feeling that I'm kind of shuffling like jigsaw pieces around that fit together a lot of the time when I'm doing it, but I have to do it in my head because it's purely symbolic in nature, right? And so I can absolutely see the appeal of a more kind of visually geometric language that will allow me to do that literally instead of just mentally, right? And then I reduce the amount of mental gymnastics needed yeah yeah definitely. I second that sentiment, okay, yeah, I, I third that sentiment.
1: yeah, awesome. Um, there some people have started to um make a a visual um, let's see. A visual theorem prover um for category theory, but it's the people who made it were focused on going to high dimensions. So it's a bit complicated to use, but it is really cool if if you want to check out homotopy.io. Um, I, haven't gotten the hang of the user interface, but uh, it does seem pretty powerful. Uh, and yeah, they even have like this 3D visualization. Um, so people are definitely thinking about a fully visual uh, theorem prover. Um. So yeah, so I would be happy to like outline this kind of three part um plan for like learning category theory basically um but first are are there any other any other questions or thoughts i i'm definitely curious like what people's backgrounds are with category theory, um, and whatever got you interested.
0: Uh, So Jacob took the winter class at MIT. And uh, Alex is like 100 times better than me at math. And we did our math undergrad together and was one of those kids who knew all this stuff like halfway through undergrad. And uh, Jacob is an under, other, other Jacob is an undergraduate who works with me, who is also a little savante at math and has picked up, I think a lot of this stuff on the side, although almost certainly not from instruction. Um, and uh, I don't think I can speak to anybody else in this call. Cool. Anybody? Well, I guess I should say I worked through some of the some like probably half of the topology textbook from Tyler Bryson and um, uh, uh Ty Danae Bradley, but I didn't finish it. Um, I already had taken point set topology, but it was from a set theory perspective. So I figured maybe I would pick up category theory by doing the book. Uh, but I kind of found that I just kept solving problems using set theory because I knew it. So it wasn't the best way for me to pick up category theory, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it's hard when, you know, unless you have the the privilege to study it full time. Yeah, it's hard to, to really pursue, um, especially because so many of the books are pretty, pretty challenging.
2: Yeah. And Brennan and Chris have no experience. So this is a good test for the stuff you're developing.
1: Cool yeah well, uh, I wish it was already ready, but um yeah, as soon as um, as soon as th- this part is developed, i'll I'll be sure to to send this group uh a, a link. Um, but yeah, so basically, uh the idea of how you can learn uh pretty much all of category theory or like the full power of the language of categories without needing to know math background, um has these three parts. So binary logic is just plain old classical logic. And the idea is that plain old logic is embodied in um the double category known as rel, um where types and processes are sets and functions and uh yeah, the, and relations and trans, uh, implications like we were talking about. Um, so the idea is that in classical logic, our relations uh, are just matrices of truth values. So classical logic, you know, just deals with true or false statements. And so this part um is supposed to be really um, simple and familiar to just about anybody. Like you don't, you need absolutely no background because you can literally talk to, you know, kindergartners and you say, draw, you know, your favorite animals on one side, your favorite plants on the other side. And then we're going to draw the relation of eating. So connect, you know, draw a connection from an animal to a plant, um, if the animal eats the plant stuff like that so it's just getting used to getting people used to the idea of visualizing um, your own thoughts and uh, also expressing them precisely um, in a in a general language um, so this part is just getting used to the the two-dimensional language um the fact that relations compose um And the implications compose both in sequence and in parallel. Um, And then matrix logic is essentially the generalization uh, from classical logic to type theory. Um, So the idea is that uh, a relation can have content beyond True or false, so <clears throat> so for example, um, it could be a matrix of sets, um, a relation from from A to B, uh, would be a a matrix of sets indexed by A and B. Um, and here you're opening people up to the idea that there's many different logics, um, and each has their own notion of connection uh, and transformations between those connections. So, um, yeah. Sorry, it's uh, it's not
2: laid out yet. Um, no. Okay. Sorry. Just quick yeah. question. Yeah. Does we're introducing the idea of many logics, but this is described as matrix logic. Does this mean matrix logic is has a bunch of embedded different logics in it? Am I misunderstanding? Oh yeah.
1: <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. Um that being misleading. Yeah. Sorry. Um that's a good point. <laughs> Nobody's ever brought that up before. Um so there's I'm just curious. Yeah, maybe I, I should maybe I should call it matrix logics. Yeah, because what we're doing is defining a general way of building lots of different logics. Um, the idea is that many we can make many different logics by filling
2: matrices with different kinds of things. And are these binary logics, or does it not matter?
1: Well, so they're, binary logic just refers to... Uh, this one logic uh, where the relations are valued and true and false. So these, yeah, I should probably call it like matrix logics. Um, it's, um. so what I'm saying is one example of a matrix logic beyond binary logic would be now Q, is a matrix of sets rather than a matrix of truth values so this would be a a map from x times y to set and then here instead of this square just being an implication um it would actually be like um a matrix of functions um so now each QXY is a whole set of things rather than just true or false. And then um, for each pair of indices, you actually have a, a function uh, from QXY to R RFXGY. So okay, this would got- be the matrix logic of sets. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Um, another example um would be distances. Basically the idea is that um there's a general recipe for building these things which takes as input a um what's called a fibered category. Has anybody heard of vibrations? Fibered categories. Basically they they formalize the idea of a dependent type. Um, you have some base category of types and processes, and then the stuff lying over a type, meaning like mapping to a type, are the types that depend on on that type. Um, So the way we can build different kinds of matrix logics is for any one of these systems of dependent types, um, we can define a relation to be a type depending on a pair of types. And that's why we can call it a, a matrix, because it's a, a two-variable dependent type. Um, so uh, yeah, the idea is that any, um, any dependent type can constitute a relation as long as you're able to um, define how to compose those relations. Um, so, like, if this was a matrix of sets, for example, and you wanted to compose with, like, S from B to C, in that case, you just take pairs of, you know, a, an element of R compose S would be a choice of a middle B, you, you sum over the middle B's, and then you take pairs of, uh, yeah. Um um so now how do you actually get category theory that's the third part is what i'm calling active logic so matrix logic is great but it has this limitation that types are not yet self-related so like um for example in the logic of distance where you're Your relations are matrices of distances between things, or how much effort it takes to get from from one thing to another. Um, The problem is that you're trying to reason about distance in this logic, but each type is a set, which as a space is a discrete space, meaning that every point in that space is infinitely far from every other point. Like there's no way to get from one point to another. Um so what we actually want for a logic of distance is for our types to be spaces uh, rather than just sets. So um so this is where categories come into play. Um and here's a sketch of the idea of a category in string diagrams. So uh, for any logic C, uh, a category in C is some type together with a relation um, from itself to itself. Um, so this is what's called the hom, the hom of a category, or like. So if we're taking this to be, for C to be the logic of sets. Then you have a set of objects, and then for each pair, um, you have a set of morphisms from, from one to the other, right? Um, And what structure do you have on that? Well, if you have uh, an arrow from A to B and an arrow from B to C, you get an arrow from A to C. So you have composition, and then similarly, for every object, um, you have a special arrow called an identity arrow. And these uh, satisfy associativity and unitality. So here's an example, just like a first small example of uh, learning category theory visually, is that the idea of composition can be drawn as this inference here. Um, And the really nice thing about this is that this picture makes sense in any logic. So when you apply it to the logic of sets, you get what is a normal category, sets, based category. But for example, we could also interpret this in the logic of distance, for example. And what does that give us? This says that the distance from A to B, b because in that logic, you know, it's a matrix, the relation is a matrix of distances. The distance from A to B plus, there our relation composition is, is with addition, plus the distance from B to C, Uh, is at least as big, greater than or equal to the distance from A to C. And that is the triangle identity, which formalizes uh, the notion of a metric space. Um, So just by instantiating the concept of a category in different logics, you can get different uh, important mathematical objects that people use to model all kinds of, all kinds of stuff.
0: Um, um this is yeah. maybe especially yeah. compelling because I feel like my criticism of a lot of pedagogy and category theory is that they're like, uh, here's a bunch of stuff in category theory that you can prove with category theory and other fields of math, uh, will, start out by showing you how something that was difficult before in in a field you already knew becomes easier, right? Like for example, when you learn group theory, there's like a bunch of stuff that's suddenly much simpler or same with topology, like you do a real analysis and then topology, when you get to topology, all this analytic stuff turns out to be like way easier. If you know what the topology is, I would think that uh, there's probably some pretty cumbersome things around metric spaces that are much easier to understand, uh, you know, from a, from a logical perspective like this. Right.
1: Yeah, I think so yeah um and and just the I mean the insight uh of the this analogy between you know what people currently regard as like very different subjects um you know people start we're thinking about metric spaces because of physics and you know modeling the physical world around them um and people think of categories as just being, you know, for modeling like abstract mathematics or something, but they're actually the same concept just in in different logics. Um, So being able to see those analogies between all our different uh, languages, I think, uh, can really um, be powerful in the long run.
2: Um, I also love this one because It's so, the triangle inequality is so evidently clear where if you imagine the B being infinitely small, then you have like the equality of distance between A and C, but in this way, it looks like more. So maybe I shouldn't interpret it that closely, but I like it here at least.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, some people do uh, just as, yeah, like a point for the bead with like uh, no size, which is technically valid, but I think using these rectangles allows you to space everything out uh, in a way that is kind of easier on people's intuition. Um, but yeah, so basically soon I'll, I'll be um, building up the basic concepts of category theory in, in this language, and, and I'll be sending it to all of you um and particularly where it so an example of something that i did like 2 years ago is this are these very messy notes from like a seminar that i i tried to give um so if anybody wants to look at these you can it it's a lot messier than what i've been doing now but it it does have the basic idea of this uh this You know, this way of learning category theory. Um, Let's see here. So, yeah, so here, for example, um, a relation is a matrix of truth values in classical logic, Um, but often, like in everyday life, our notion of relation is more general, having to do with distances or sets, and this talks about how to this is talking about the matrix construction, how to how to build other kinds of logics. And then um, category theory. Uh, wait a second. Yeah, here we go. So um, one of the ways that this course will quickly go beyond what most people learn in category theory books is okay so here's the concept of a category and some different examples here's the the triangle uh the triangle inequality for a a metric space um you can also get rings this way um, and so for example, functors between categories have the very intuitive thing that these composition beads can slide through. If you've seen like a homomorphism in algebra, um, it means like operating and then mapping is the same as mapping separately and then operating, right? So this has a really nice intuition that you're literally just being. It just means that you can slide one one bead through another. Um, That's really but, sorry. Yeah, isn't that nice?
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, sorry. I, the the point that I was getting to is just that the the big gaping hole in most category theory books is the notion of a profunctor. Um, which is a really poorly named concept, which is extremely important. It's like the foundation of all of category theory, but currently most books really overcomplicate it. Um, But it's just the idea of a bunch of morphisms or arrows jumping from one category to another. And it has actions of like pre-composition by one category and post-composition by another. And again, it's it, it just becomes much simpler um, in this in this language. So there's certain things that I think are not not really done well in, in most books that I'm I'm looking to to improve on. Um, so if anybody wants wants to look at this, it's not great, but um, it, it exists. Um, and yeah, there will be a better version soon.
0: Um, yeah, And this this was wonderful. Um, and I, I really like how some of these pictures communicate ideas that really are frustrating to communicate to people who are not embedded in the algebra. One that came to mind immediately when you were showing um, uh, the morphism is like explaining homomorphic encryption to people. It's just a pain in the ass to get people to understand why I would care that my operators are preserved across the kind of encryption boundary, mm-hmm. right? Um, or like what it even means. Um, and that picture makes it totally obvious what it means. You literally push it through encryption and you can still add things and get something that preserves the structure of the addition. Right. So um, I, I can see a lot of this being really pedagogically useful in other domains beyond category theory.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, it sounds, it sounds like we should, we should talk more for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um.
0: Um, I have to go. I have a hard out. But what I'm going to do is uh, transfer control to Jacob in case people want to ask a few minutes of questions. And um, but yeah, Christian, I just want to say thank you so much. I really really enjoyed your talk. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And yeah. Um, okay, I have. I'm oh, to, yeah, I'm
1: happy to to take any questions or thoughts.